Well, it's, uh, it's good to be with you all today um, as we uh, continue to talk about Matthew's gospel. Um, the, uh, those of you who were here last week, we started off by talking about, um, you know, what is it exactly that Matthew does with his Markan source material? And so if we think about Matthew's gospel, you know, where does he get his stuff? Uh, and there are several different places that he gets it. Uh, for one thing, he has his own collection of oral traditions that we would call special Matthew. And we don't know if those were written down or if they were just passed along orally. We don't know exactly how Matthew uh, came into possession to those uh, uh, traditions. We don't have any reason to think that Matthew just made them up because Luke has similar traditions. He just doesn't always tell them in the same uh, language. So you can tell in that case they haven't. Uh, copied from a source. In addition to his own unique material, that special Matthew, there are these say quotations from Jesus. They call it Q. It's, it's short for the word Kvela in, in German, which just means source. Um, and so, you know, we, we don't have it except insofar as it's preserved inside of Matthew and Luke. And then we have Mark. And Mark serves as a source for both Matthew and for Luke. And one of the interesting things that we can do is we can look at how Matthew and Luke turn off uh, with a, a little bit of an exercise here because uh, I've got to set this up theologically. We don't always get too deep into theology here. Theology is a, a little bit above my pay grade. I love the Bible. I kind of just stick with that. Um, you know, I went to a Jewish university. We don't really do theology there. You know, just leave that for y'all Christians. Um, that was a mild joke there. Um, so, all right. So <laughs> there's a, a question that I always ask my students as I'm, I'm leading this into a particular topic. And I'll, I'll write on the board. I'll say, because God is God, God cannot. And then I draw a blank. Now, they immediately think, well, he's just... <laughs> There's nothing God can't do, and so this is just a trick, and he's trying to just lure us in here. Well, it is entirely a trick, and I am trying to lure them into something. But I encourage them. You know, there are, in fact, things that God can't do. And they'll think a little bit, and eventually someone will come up with the idea, well, that's true. God can't sin. Now, of course, once one student has said God can't sin, that removes from the table every other permutation of sin that's out there because suddenly hands go up and they're lie, cheat, steal, you know, all of those things. Like, no, no, sorry, that one's already been taken. And then they have to think a little further. And I say, look, I'm not interested in these sort of logical kind of conundrums like, uh, you know, make a rock so big that he can't move it or, you know, make a square circle. I say, that's, those are just logical problems. That's not a, uh, any sort of deficiency on God's part. What are some things that God can't do? And eventually they start to think through it a little bit. And they say, well, you know, God can't be wrong. I'm like, there you go. That's a good example of something. And, or somebody else will come up with the idea, well, you know, God can't learn something. And I'm like, you're, you're right. And actually, those are both tied to the same thing. If God is omniscient, then God can't learn. I've always questioned whether God has a sense of humor. If from time immemorial, you know the punchlines to all of the jokes, do you really, you know, kind of get the joke in the moment there? Though I did have a, uh, a, a young lady who was in my youth group when I was a youth pastor over in Inslee, and she only had one joke. And she would say, uh, Jeff, ask me if I'm a tree. And I would say, okay, angel, are you a tree? And she would go, no. That was her joke. <laughs> Honestly, that joke got funnier the more that angel told it. So perhaps God's sense of humor is just because he has heard all of the jokes before. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, so, so as I start to lead them along this, there's a particular attribute of God from uh, orthodox belief about God in Christianity. And that is the idea of God's independence. 
And independence means that God is incapable of having a need. Were God to have a need, it would suggest some deficiency in God that something external to God would have to fill up. And that's just not a belief within Orthodox Christianity. God cannot have a need. And so we start to think a little bit about, well, what are some of the needs that God couldn't have? Well, he couldn't get thirsty, for example. Or he couldn't get hungry, for example. That would imply some deficiency that you'd need external food to be able to make up. So God couldn't get thirsty. He couldn't get uh, hungry. Certainly couldn't get tired. You know, that would be, uh, you know, he would need rest or something like that. Here's an interesting one. He couldn't get lonely. That's a fascinating one, which I think sometimes from a human perspective we miss this. Why did God create the universe? It was because he was lonely, and he needed us to fill it up. This is absolute heresy within Orthodox Christianity. The Trinity says no, um, that God doesn't get lonely. So he, he, he doesn't get hungry. He doesn't get thirsty. He doesn't get tired. If we go back to omniscience, he certainly couldn't learn something, couldn't not know something, all of those things. And this is where I'm setting my students up, because once they've come up with enough of these and I've written them on the board, I say... So what you're saying is you don't believe that Jesus is divine. And suddenly they begin to scramble because that is not at all what they believe about the person of Jesus. And they go, no, no, wait a minute. I, no, I, I do. I, I don't understand. You, you have said God can't do these things, and yet Jesus does all of these things. He, he, well, he doesn't sin, obviously, but he, Jesus gets thirsty. In fact, he says on the cross, I thirst. Jesus, he, he eats. In fact, he even eats after the resurrection. I think that's a very interesting one. Um, so he eats. He, uh, he gets tired. Remember when he's asleep in the bottom of the boat and so forth? It, you could say that Jesus learns. In fact, there are actually quite a few places in the Gospels where that certainly seems to be the case. John has what we would call the highest Christology of any of the Gospels, uh, presents Jesus in the most divine fashion, and yet even in John it says, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees did X, then he did Y. Jesus asks questions, he, he does all of these things, which God is simply incapable of doing. The humanity and divinity of Christ is a paradox. Christianity is built upon a series of paradoxes. If you think about Christian belief, Orthodox Christian belief, one of the, the paradoxes that we have is, is Jesus divine or human? You could think of another one. Do we enter into a right relationship with God on the basis of faith or on the basis of works? Is it that there's one God? or that there's a trinity? Is God sovereign, Presbyterians, or do we have free will? All of these are paradoxes. And they're, they're things that you cannot, on this side of the veil, completely solve. It, it's like trying to see ultraviolet light with you know, your, your naked eyes. We just don't have the skill set, the mental capacity to square these circles. To go back to my earlier illustration, I assume that one day when we get to heaven, we'll be able to understand these things. On this side of the veil, though, we're like Paul. We see through a glass darkly. Only then will we see face to face. In fact, I actually worry sometimes when we try to solve some of these paradoxes that we're making ourselves more intelligent theologically than Paul would have claimed to be. Because Paul admits there are mysteries that I can't understand. And it will be a while, namely when I'm in the presence of God, before I'll understand them. And at that point, we probably won't care. Now, you realize you can fix all of these paradoxes. It's actually been done before. 
You can take these paradoxes and you can just solve them. You can say, well, okay, well, is God sovereign or do we make meaningful choices? God is sovereign. Is Jesus, is he human or is he divine? He's human. Is it, is it on the basis of works or faith? It's on the basis of works. Is it one God or a trinity? It's one God. And you just line all of those up on one side and what you have is Islam. It's a perfectly simple and elegant and in some ways beautiful religion because it just took all of the paradoxes and just cut the Gordian knot right in half and said, okay, on this side, we'll take all of these and we'll just solve the paradoxes. And you can understand why Islam can be quite attractive in some ways because it doesn't present all of the sort of mental dilemmas that we have to you know, think through when we're trying to wrestle with Christian belief. Now, there is only one problem with that you know, uh, view, though. <laughs> Islam's not Christianity. Um, and so if we want to hold on to Orthodox Christian belief, well, we're stuck. We're stuck with the paradoxes that are there. Now, we're not the first people to wrestle with these things. In fact, early Christians wrestled with these right out of the gate. And there are two different groups of Christians that uh, we know from history that kind of took opposite positions on these. One side, they're called the Ebionites. If you wanted to write it down, it's E-B-I-O-N-I-T-E-S, the Ebionites. On the other side, you have what are called the Docetists. These are D-O-C-E-T-I-S-T-S um, there. I probably misspelled that one, but that's okay. So Ebionites and Docetists. These are two groups of Christians that came from two different backgrounds. The Ebionites were Jewish in their background. The Docetists were Greek. And their cultural and ethnic backgrounds led to differing positions on some of these um, uh, theological ideas. So, for example, let, let's take the, the Ebionites. When it came to the issue of, let's say, law versus faith, the Ebionites, being from a Jewish background, were all in favor of the law. And so they thought that Christians should continue to follow the law. And as a result, there were certain characters in the New Testament that they really liked. They liked James. If you ever read James, you know, James, and he describes the law, you know, he says, if you violate this, you are violating the royal law. And he's talking about Leviticus when he calls it the royal law of Christ. We don't hear that a whole lot. Certainly don't hear it a whole lot in Baptist circles um, about Leviticus being the royal law of Christ there. Um, they, so they loved James, loved Matthew. We won't have enough time to get into Matthew's view of the law. But Matthew's the one that says, do not think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish the law. I came to show you how to do it. This is not somebody who's jettisoning the law here. So they loved James. They loved Matthew. You could probably guess who they didn't like. Not big fans of Paul. No, they, they didn't think that Paul was a true representative uh, of God's word, and so they didn't like Paul at all. Um, so that's how they felt about the law. Well, well, how did it work when it came to Jesus? They had no problem at all with the idea that Jesus was a man. He, he could have been a, a perfect man, the best man. You know, he may have lived a perfect life and so forth, but they couldn't accept the idea that Jesus was God. And the reason for that was because they're Jewish and they're monotheist. And they just couldn't figure out how you could have one God and yet both the Father and Jesus be divine. So that's what the Ebionites thought. The Docetists were on the exact opposite side of the ledger. 
with the, for the Docetists, they didn't believe in the law at all. They're, they're uh, from a branch that you would actually call antinomian. Uh, so anti-nomos is the word for law, so antinomian. They didn't think there really should be any law. And when I say any law, I mean any law. So, for example, the, when Paul writes to the people at Corinth, one of the things that the Corinthians are wrestling with is this kind of issue. Um, someone has ratted out the Corinthians to Paul. They have told Paul what the Corinthians are doing and saying, and when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he quotes some of their lines back to them. So what's the point if you don't use them and so forth? And, and Paul like, keeps saying meganoito in Greek, which means, God forbid, <laughs> no, that's not what you're supposed to be doing here. And then he'll have to correct them on this. The Corinthians were sort of in this Greek culture. I mean, the word to Corinthianize meant to corrupt someone's morals back in antiquity. The, the temple at Corinth had a thousand temple prostitutes um, that were there. So this was like the, the Vegas plus the red light district in Amsterdam, plus you named the place, all combined into one. This was Corinth, and it had an effect on the Christians who were there. And Paul's having to go, no, what are you doing? So when it, when it came to the law, they said, no, we shouldn't be bound by this. You can do whatever you want to. It's only, you know, as long as you're thinking the right thoughts, then everything's okay. So they, they rejected the law, and as a result, they did actually kind of like Paul because they, well, they liked the parts of Paul where Paul was saying the law was dead. They didn't like James, and they didn't like Matthew one bit. Actually, you know, the, not that he's antinomian, but, you know, Luther wasn't a big fan of James, right? Uh, he called James an epistle of straw, because, not because he was antinomian, but he was sort of anti-Torah. He was anti-law in one respect there. All right, so how about when it came to the person of Christ? Well, the, uh, the docetist had no problem at all accepting the notion that Jesus was divine. What they could not accept was actually that he was human. That was the part that they struggled with. And the reason for this is kind of this complicated Greek idea that the material world is so corrupt and bad that God can't interact with it. And so for, for God to actually become human would just be like a category mistake for them. They would think, no, he, he just can't do that. It's, the, the theological term, the, the technical term for it is the, the material world is icky. Um, I, I see if Bart ever said that. How, do we, how would you even say that in German? Um, you know, so the icky height. Um, the, it's, there's, it's just God can't interact with it. Now, I have to appeal to a couple of pop culture illustrations here. Uh, surely some of you have seen The Matrix. If you've seen The Matrix, there's this particular scene where Agent Smith is trying to break down Morpheus, uh, Lawrence Fishburne's character. And as he's doing it, he's appealing to him to get the codes to, the, you know, the, to enter the city of Zion that's there. And he's saying, by the way, this movie is absolutely filled with messianic imagery if you really watch all the way through it. It has a whole conversion scene for Neo. We'll talk about that another time. When, um, when he's doing this, though, he, he's, he's saying, you've got to help me get out of this place. He says, it's the smell if there is such a thing. He wants out because Agent Smith's not a person. He's a computer program stuck in a material world, and he hates it. He finds it icky. If we go to a, an even more ancient uh, pop culture example, some of you may be familiar, though I, I, I really have questions for this one, with the, the wonderful series called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. 
Ah, uh, yes, I see that registering with a lot of you out there. So Buffy the Vampire Slayer, there was a whole season, in fact, it was the best season of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where there was a goddess who was trapped in human form. And she called her human form, it was a meat sack was the idea because she was in, you know, accustomed to this infinity of being a goddess and she's stuck in a body. That's the notion that's there. It's this idea of being stuck in a material world and it's just gross, for want of a better term. And they said, God can't do this. Now the word docetic actually comes from the Greek word dokeo, which means to appear. And what they meant by that was Jesus, oh, I'm sorry, Christ only appeared to be human. He really was just a hologram or a projection or something like that. When, when Jesus, when Christ, I'll get this right in a minute, when Christ walked, Christ did not leave footprints, they would say, because he wasn't really here. It was just a projection, just a hologram, just waiting for Princess Leah to say, help us, Obi-Wan, you're our only hope. You know, that kind of thing. He wasn't really there. It was just a projection. The divine Christ possessed the human Jesus. Now, at what point did they imagine that this divine Christ possessed this human Jesus? It's at the baptism when the dove comes down they're thinking this is when the, the divine Christ enters Jesus, and that's when God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And at what point did they imagine that the divine Christ left the human Jesus? You remember on the cross when it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They imagined this to be Jesus saying to the divine Christ, why are you abandoning me at this moment? right here. Now, of course, this is completely unorthodox. It's heretical, but this was their view. It does make sense of some passages in Scripture. If you go back to 1 Corinthians again, there's this very odd line in there where Paul says, no one speaking by the Spirit can say Jesus is accursed. You ever read that line and thought, what sort of church were they going to? where that was a big problem that they had to deal with. Is it, you know, I don't, I don't know about you all. I mean, I, I, I haven't been to too many services here at IPC, but I know over at Dawson, we don't have anybody saying Jesus is accursed as part of our services there. <laughs> sort of strange thing. You notice I said, Jesus is accursed. What they meant by that was the Corinthians were saying the human Jesus is of no account. Only the divine crawling beginning. The biblical authors write toward both of these camps, and they write toward both of them to rein in their excesses. And so if they're writing toward the Ebionites, they're saying simply a human Jesus is insufficient for capturing who this character is. If they're writing towards people who are on the docetic side, this nascent docetic side, they're writing to say, simply a divine Christ and not a true incarnation, this is not a sufficient view of Jesus. The orthodox view of the person of Christ, Christ Jesus, is that he's both divine and human at the same time. How do we solve all of the different permutations of that? One day, we'll get to ask Jesus himself. Until then, we wrestle in the middle like we have to with a lot of theological ideas. Well, one of the places where we can see the tension 
of these two parts of Jesus is when we look at the Gospels. Imagine that you are the Gospel writers and you're wanting to emphasize both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus, but you can only do it by telling stories. In other words, the Gospel writers, they have set their brand of genre, and that genre is going to be narrative. They're not going to do like Paul does and just sort of write out theological ideas. They are going to have to embed their theological ideas inside the medium of biography, narrative. And that's how sometimes we come up with our differences between, say, Mark on the one hand and Matthew or Luke or John on the other hand. It's because they're giving us different Different angles, different sides. I mean, my, my goodness, when I went, my, my son's getting married in a couple of weeks. In fact, two weeks from today. Um, you know, I'm about to do that whole Mel Gibson, freedom, you know, kind of, you know, cry that's there. Uh, you know, the money that will be left over after we've unloaded him from the payroll. I'll, I'm going to buy an island, maybe Oahu or something. You know, it's, uh, there'll, be, there'll be so much cash rolling around, I'm sure. Except that it seems like I'm still paying for the one that got married last year. I think some of y'all can probably relate to this, right? Um, um, it never goes away. The, uh, there, was a, there was a line in a program, whatever. They could just have the house. We'll just move away and just let them keep it. Um, the, uh, when uh, Elijah gets married, and, let me trace back to how I was getting to this. Elijah is getting married, two weeks. Freedom, Mel Gibson. I know there was a line in there somewhere that I was headed toward. What in the world was it? Um, I shouldn't have distracted myself. I'm, I'm like, you know, Doug with a squirrel, you know, and suddenly I'm off and, and running on something like this. The, the nice thing is with my students, I get to meet them three times a week and I can say, oh yeah, you remember that thing I was talking about? What in the world were we talking about? You take it and you don't just look at it from one side. You hold it and you turn it and you turn it and you look at it in a different way. You want to catch it in a different light is the idea. When they are looking at the person of Jesus, they are holding this character up and saying, just one picture can't capture everything. And so they look at it from one direction and then from another direction. One story apparently is insufficient to capture everything about Christ Jesus. And so they tell us these four stories to capture these different elements. All right. So how does that work out inside the text of Matthew's gospel? Well, you've got a handout there for you. And I want to walk you through for the rest of our time together some of the ways that we can see that Matthew presents not just the disciples, not just Jesus' family in a more idealized fashion, but he actually presents Jesus himself in a more idealized fashion. So uh, one place where we can see this is that Matthew consistently removes any questions that Jesus might ask that imply that Jesus didn't already know the answer. And as I've said this before, if you just found one time where Matthew did something, well, that's not a pattern. What you're looking for is where Matthew does it again and again and again, and that's what we have in this particular example. If you were to look at Mark 5, I, I, I didn't have enough room on my handout to give you the full text, so let me read a little bit to introduce it. Mark says, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is a story that has come up several times for us already. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. He lived among the tombs, and no one could restrain him anymore. 
more, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wrenched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and slashing himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him. And then this is where your text picks up. And he shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he had said to him, for this is Mark with our pronouns here, right? For Jesus had said to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out into the country. So you notice the question that Jesus asked, what's your name? Well, look at Matthew's version. The Matthew starts off this way. I'll, I'll read you just a verse here. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demoniacs coming out of the tombs met him so fierce that no one could pass that way. Suddenly they shouted, what have you to do with us, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You could tell it's the same passage, right? Now a large herd of swine was feeding at some distance from them. The whole part where Jesus asks, what's your name? And the reply is legion. Matthew omits that question on Jesus' part. And he doesn't do this once. He does it every time. When there's a question in Mark where Jesus doesn't seem to know the answer already, Matthew will omit that question. Look at the next example you've got there. This is again in Mark 5. You remember the story of the woman with the perpetual hemorrhage? Um, this is uh, the way Mark's verse, it kind of picks up there in the middle. For she said, if I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately, <laughs> I love Mark with those immediately. Uh, immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? Now, I love the disciples' response when they say, you see the crowd, and yet you ask, who touched me? Who didn't touch you? It's a mosh pit in here, Jesus. Everybody's touching you. And, and do you notice what it says? He looked around to see who had done it. This isn't a rhetorical question when he says, who touched my clothes? Because once he's asked, and the disciples have said, who knows? He looks around to try to figure out who did it here. Look at Matthew's version. For she said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. That question, who touched my clothes, and that looking around to see who did it, those are missing in Matthew's gospel. If you look at the next example there, uh, this is one where uh, there will actually be several reasons why Matthew is going to uh, omit this passage. This is the one where it says, They came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Can you see anything? There's our question, right? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He looked intently and his sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Both Matthew and Luke omit this passage. Now, this is significant because Matthew and Luke copy virtually the entirety of Mark's gospel. The only sorts of passages that they do not copy from Mark are the passages of the reason. Part of the reason why this gets left out 
is because Jesus asked this question, can you see anything? I've got one more there at the bottom. It's actually, I guess I've got two here. Uh, do you remember the whole thing where uh, the, there's the story of the, the child who has epilepsy? Um, it says in Mark chapter 9, when the whole crowd saw him, they were immediately overcome with awe. They ran toward, uh, forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Because they had been arguing that's in there. And then he, you go a little bit further and the, the man talks about what's happening to his son. He becomes rigid and he you know, grinds his teeth and so forth. Look at verse 21. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? So two questions that are in there. Matthew has this passage, copies the language of it, but he leaves out both questions. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him and knelt before him. The question, what were you arguing about, is missing. He said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He's an epileptic. He suffers terribly, often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't cure him. And then that next part where it says, how long has this been happening to him? Matthew again and again omits questions that imply a lack of knowledge. The last one I've got here on the page is, remember when the disciples are walking behind Jesus and, you know, God bless them there. It's, it's highlighted so much in Mark, but Mark's not the only gospel where you have this, where, you know, the message of Jesus, if you summarized it, would be put other people before yourself. You know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, that kind of idea. Um, you know, go the extra mile, all of that sort of thing. And what are the disciples doing as they're following Jesus? They're arguing with one another about which one of them is the greatest. Like a bunch of kindergartners, they're back there going, oh, yeah, I'm better than you. Oh, no, I'm better than you. These are the disciples that are doing this. And Jesus, when he arrives at the place, he says, what were y'all arguing about? And by the way, Jesus would have said y'all. There is a, a plural pronoun in both Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Um, he said, what were y'all arguing about back there? And, and they're silent because they had argued about who was the greatest. You notice that in Matthew's version, at that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? The disciples look a little better because it's not that they were arguing over who was the greatest, but they're just, you know, in a more theoretical way. Who? Jesus, who, who, what would it take to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That kind of thing. And Jesus asking a question is omitted. So one of the on the other side, when it's the feeding of the multitudes, in Mark, Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. In Matthew, there's no question in that passage. Jesus said to them, uh, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They replied, we have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. The question is missing. Okay. So, uh, yes, absolutely. How, uh, how many times, if you look at these passages in, uh, in, in Luke, in Luke, how many times does Luke do the Luke does almost the same thing. Um, he, Luke, like Matthew, will omit those questions almost every time. I'd have to look at each one of the passages to see if there are places where he does include some. Uh, but Luke, Luke is pretty consistently similar to Matthew in terms of presenting that more idealized portrait of Jesus? That's a, that's a great question uh, because it, it, uh, it definitely shows that Matthew and Luke are on one side of this particular issue and, and Mark's the one who's on the other uh, in there. Um, a second way that you can tell that Matthew is, is treating Jesus in a more idealized fashion or presenting him in a more idealized fashion is any statement in Mark that would imply a lack of ability on Jesus' part. 
Matthew is going to leave that out. So, for example, remember on the, uh, the, the first page when we were looking at the story of the man at Bethsaida, where Jesus, he says, can you see anything? And, and the man says, well, I can, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. That's a very unusual passage. And it's not unusual just because of the question, can you see anything? It's unusual because it's a miracle that takes two tries. There's the first attempt and the, eh, you can see and they're blurry. And then the man has to look more intently and then he can see everything clearly. Well, I think we, we've covered this. I think we know why it takes two tries. It's because Mark is trying to present this as sort of the key to his gospel. The whole point of Mark's gospel is look again, look more intently. And we talked about how literarily he's put these two passages right in the middle. One is the miracle that takes two tries with the question in the middle, can you see anything? The other is the story of who do people say that I am? Oh, you're Elijah, one of the prophets. Who do you say that I am? And the disciples look more clearly. They look more intently and they see who Jesus really is. This is the whole point of Mark. Matthew was apparently unconcerned with the literary you know, theme of Mark's gospel. What he sees is Jesus did a miracle and he had to do it twice. And so this is why I think Matthew and Luke leave this story aside altogether. And it's not just that one, but you remember the story where Jesus, remember his, his base of operations is Capernaum, but there's a certain point where he goes back home goes to Nazareth, the place where he had been raised, and it starts off and there's that whole kind of tussle about, in Mark's gospel, isn't this uh, the carpenter, <coughs> Mary's son? And they're kind of taking a dig at him there. It's a little bit different language in Matthew where it says, isn't this the carpenter's son, uh, the, the son of Mary? So it's not quite as, as hostile there. But the people, they take offense at Jesus. They look at him and they say, well, basically, who does this guy think he is coming here? He's just like a craftsman, and yet he thinks he can come and tell us about the Torah. And Jesus, remember he responds with that whole line about, well, look at Mark's gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 6, verse 4, Jesus said to them, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. So he's quoting this kind of proverb that, you know, you go somewhere else and people respect you. You come back home and you're not such a big deal. That's what Jesus' proverb means. And then look at what he says. And he could do no deed of power there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he could do no deed of power there? In other words, like, if he wanted to, he still could not do it? Look at how Matthew puts it. They took offense at him. Jesus said, prophets are not without honor except in their own country and in their own house. And he did not do many deeds of power there because of their unbelief. You know, that's a big difference in wording there. Could not versus just did not. Now, well, one of the things, you know, I guess we have to kind of think about this. Is it possible that perhaps Mark has just spoken ineloquently in here? And if pushed on the matter, he might have said, well, I guess he could have if he wanted to. But, you know, it, it happens from time to time. We say things and they just don't really come out the way that we want them to. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we, we wish that we had an unsend on that email or, or that text or, or those words that leave our mouths. Uh, when I was a, a kid, my, uh, I, I, like I'm sure many of you or, or your kids did, had baseball park friends. 
These were kids that you saw during the baseball season, but because you went to different schools, you didn't see them during the rest of the year. And then you'd see them again during a baseball season. And, and uh, I, I had a friend like this, and, and uh, this guy's older sister got married during the off season. So my mom got a gift for the, uh, uh, the, the young bride there, and she just held on to it until baseball season started back up. And, you know, they, they've been married a few months at this point. And so my mom, she could have watered the baseball field with the, you know, the tears that began to flow. And she says, I wish that I could have just crawled under the bleachers and hid because I didn't, I, I, it just didn't come out right. And uh, it was, it was uncomfortable. Um, I, I remember um, uh, there was a particular moment um, I, I, I laughed. I, I can't remember who said this, but they were talking about, you know, in the debate between Joe Biden and uh, Donald Trump, who would be the loser? And one person replied, the English language, which, which I thought was pretty clever. Um, and, you know, if, if you go back, you could just skip back a couple of presidencies and you could go to George W. Bush and God bless him, whatever you think about him politically. There were moments when the words would come out not so goodly. Um, and uh, I, I remember a particular moment when you just went, oh, no, no. Because what they were talking about was how after 9-11 that the United States was going to begin this, this global campaign against terrorism and that you know we were, we were going to go after this and so forth, except he didn't use the word campaign. Now the word that he used, it did start with a C, he said, we're going to launch a global crusade against terrorism. Now, all of us in this room understand what that means because we'll talk about like the crusade against drugs or the crusade against this. We do not mean reestablishing the Latin kingdom in Jerusalem. That's not what we have in mind when we say the word crusade. But there's a whole lot of the world that hears this word quite differently and so, you know, for example, Osama bin Laden in one of his speeches is talking about, we, we will fix the tragedy of Andalusia. He's talking about something from 800 years ago when the Moors were kicked out of Spain or something. What do we care about the Moors in Spain? We don't talk about such things there, but there are other people for whom this is right under the surface. It was one of those words that as soon as you heard it, he went, no. That's there. And Matthew goes, yeah, I don't know that it's that he couldn't. It's just that he didn't do any mighty work there. That's the idea. On the other hand, is Mark giving us a sense of Jesus' humanity that, you know, is maybe uncomfortable, but Matthew, but also true? Yes, sir. How far back do we go with the original manuscript where Mark actually said, or Luke You know, where I would put it is I, I would say we have great confidence about what Mark and Matthew said. Where it's trickier is that gap in between what Jesus said and what Mark writes or what Jesus said and what Matthew writes. Because that's that time period where these things are, for one thing, they're, they're orally passed down. And then they're getting translated from Aramaic over to Greek. So there's already some kind of paraphrase that goes on. So when it comes to like capturing the precise words of Jesus, I, you know, I think what we have are paraphrases of the words of Jesus. In terms of our confidence in knowing exactly what Mark said in his gospel or, or exactly what Matthew said, I think we can actually feel pretty confident about those parts just because they're attested by so many manuscripts uh, in there.
That's how I would put that one. Tom's that a question? I told you, Tom, we were going to avoid that. That's why I spent the first 20 minutes talking about it. No. But, I mean, it seems to be making the same point. Yeah. He, he couldn't be effective because there's a whole lack of faith. And, it, I, and I think that's the issue is that, you know, what we don't know is sometimes we don't have these counterfactuals of if you pressed Mark on this point and said, okay, did you mean that he could not even if he had wanted to, I imagine Mark probably was at, well, I guess if he wanted to, he could have. But the way that he left the text there is he just says, could not. Where you really get your sort of revelation is on Matthew's side where he, Matthew did the counterfactual. He, he saw the word could not and said, no, that's not, that's not it. It's just that he did not. So it's harder, and this is actually true of all of the synoptic puzzle, it's not as easy to figure out what Mark believed. It is much easier to figure out what Matthew and Luke believed because for them, you get the source material and you can see how they changed it. You can't always do that the other direction. If it were the case, which I don't think is true, that Mark were copying Matthew, well, that would be quite fascinating. The thing is that any time that Mark presents Jesus in a way where he looks like a, for want of a better term, a magician or a faith healer, Matthew and Luke, they step back from those kinds of presentations. So, for example, the, the one that I've got for you here is they brought to him, this is in Mark, it's not in Matthew or Luke. They brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment in his speech and they begged him to lay his hand on him. He took him aside in private away from the crowd, put his fingers into his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looking to heaven, he sighed and said, Ephatah. That is, be opened, and immediately his ears were opened. Now look, charismatic, you know, it, it's not that I'm saying charismatics are wrong, it's just it's not my style, and so I, you know, I, I just, I want to go to my happy place, you know, when, when these kinds of things are happening and so forth, and, and, and here you've, you've got Jesus spitting and touching his tongue and saying, Ephatah, this sort of power word and so forth, and I go, man, that's weird. And I think Matthew felt the same way. In fact, I think it's another reason why Matthew left out the story where Jesus heals the guy but in two tries. You remember, he says that he takes his saliva and he you know, rubs it on his eyes and so forth um, and that kind of thing. I, I think that was something that sort of pushed up against Matthew's boundaries a little bit there. It's also, I think, why that part of the story about the woman with the hemorrhage, he doesn't just leave out the question, who touched me? He leaves out that line and it says, and when he perceived that power had gone forth from him, it almost makes the power as if it's something separate from Jesus' conscious action. And I don't think Matthew was comfortable with that kind of notion, that it's not just he's some wonder worker and you touch him and something happens here, um, that you know it's out of his control. I think Matthew presents Jesus in a little bit different light in that regard. And one of the places uh, to conclude this here at the bottom, where you can see this all come together, is that in Mark, there's this secrecy theme that pervades the gospel from one end to the other. No one really gets Jesus. Whether it's his family, his disciples, obviously the religious leaders, no one gets Jesus in Mark's gospel. 
In Matthew's gospel, lots of people get Jesus. Lots of people understand who Jesus is. So for example, uh, Mary and Joseph, right there at the beginning, I, I have this fun, provocative thing that I'll say to my students, I'll tell them, you know, it's a few lectures from now, but uh, I'll explain that, you know, there's no such person as Jesus. And they oh, what, what, what? Well, the reason is because Jesus wasn't named Jesus. Jesus was named Joshua. Jesus is Joshua, there's no such person as James. James is Jacob. Uh, there's no such person as Mary, because Mary is Miriam. All of these are just English translation of these Old Testament words that are there. Jesus' name was Joshua. In fact, if you look in the book of Hebrews, there's a passage where it's talking about Jesus and Joshua, and you have to kind of like trace it out to figure out who is who, because it will say, and Joshua did this, but now Joshua did not do this, but Joshua did do this, that's Jesus' name. His name, Yeshua, Yehoshua, is what his original name was. Now, here's what's interesting about his name. Joshua, Yehoshua, Yeho is the divine name. Shua means salvation or saves. Jesus' name means Jehovah saves. Now, you remember when the angel came and presented himself to Joseph? Notice what he said in Matthew chapter 1. Look down at verse 21. She, Mary, will bear a son... You are to name him Joshua. You are to name him Jehovah saves, for he will save his people from their sins. This kid gets the name Jehovah saves, the angel says, because he will save. It's making an equation between Jesus and Jehovah. This is the God who saves is what the angel is saying. When Mary and Joseph name the kid Joshua, they are acting in faith and recognizing that's who this kid is. And, and what is it, that, you know, the next verse, it goes on to say this was to fulfill what the prophet said, that his name will be Emmanuel, that is God with us, Imanu, with us, El, God. This is their way when they call Jesus Joshua, that is their way of affirming what the angel said. Mary and Joseph get Jesus in this gospel. The Magi, pagan astrologers from Mesopotamia, understand who Jesus is. In Mark, the disciples don't get it. In Matthew, even pagan astrologers from other countries get it, and they come to Jerusalem bearing their gifts. In the story of Jesus' baptism, this is actually a terribly scandalous story when you read Mark's gospel. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. It's very easy to just skip right over that passage. The problem with this passage is when you get baptized, what you're doing is you are submitting to the message of the person who does the baptizing. Well, what was John's message in a word? Repent. When you read this, you go, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> Jesus was repenting? If there's anything the gospel writers are clear on, Jesus doesn't sin, what would he be repenting on? I realize this is foreign territory for y'all, but in other churches, they do altar calls. Some of it, it's not when you call the altar something. It's when people go forward. I, you know, maybe I could show a picture or something like this. If Jesus or Joshua were in your congregation, and you got to really stretch here. I, I'm wondering which is more of a stretch, that you're thinking of the altar call happening in a Presbyterian church or you're thinking of Jesus going forward. Um, if Jesus went forward, wouldn't something go off in your head and say, whoa, wait a minute, what's he going forward for? Jesus is not repenting in this passage. But Matthew is the one that has to make that clear. Matthew says, it's okay, John, 
Matthew's John comes down and the voice says, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. In other words, it's just between Jesus and God. In Matthew's gospel, it's this is my beloved son. In other words, the voice is speaking to the crowd that's there. That secrecy theme is removed. All right, I got to wrap up here because I'm, I'm over time by a minute. I don't think we need to attribute malicious intent or bad faith to either Mark or Matthew. They are stuck with an almost insoluble dilemma. And that is, how do you capture the humanity and the divinity of Jesus when all you can do is tell the stories of Jesus? That's the medium they've decided to use. And what they've done is they've presented us these two views, and their two views, I think, capture that tension that Orthodox believers have always had to live with, is that on the one hand, he's human. On the other hand, he's divine. How do we solve this? I have no idea. I hope when I get the beatific vision one day that I'll understand. Right now, I just say, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, and accept these things the way that they're presented. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I thank you even for the confusing parts of your word. I pray that you will help us to live your word out and to live those parts that are so clear even better than we do now. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.